So this is an interview I did with Pastor Brian Zond and, and Perry Zond, who uh, have been pastors of a church in Missouri in the United States for several decades now. Uh, we've been really privileged to have them in Northern Ireland a couple of times, and uh, Brian is one of those voices that I think is just hugely important in these times. Uh, he's written a number of books. Uh, when I interviewed him last year, it was, it was June last year, I was going to go and see Arcade Fire with him and Perry and my wife Jen that night. Uh, it was just after the Joshua Tree. Uh, the U2 had just done a kind of a Joshua Tree tribute tour, um, and it was just before Brian's book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, came out. Um, and Perry's book uh, on the Camino to Santiago had also just come out. Um, Brian and Perry did the Camino. Um, they walked the whole way. And in fact, as, as I record this now, they're doing a second Camino in Portugal. Uh, so I hope you enjoy this podcast. It's nice to hear both of their voices. Um, usually, if you're if you're a follower of Brian, you usually just hear his voice. But actually, his wife Perry's just a, a lovely, remarkable person. I just love spending time with both of them. Um, uh, she's a Enneagram Seven, as is my wife, and so it's always fun to drive along in the car and Jen and Perry in the back, kind of just being enthusiastic number sevens in the back seat <laughs> while Brian and me talk about music in the front seat. So uh, it's, um, it probably covers a lot of areas. It was quite broad at this time. I wasn't sure what, what this podcast was going to be called. You'll, you'll hear that. Brian had an idea on what it could be called. Um, and uh, it's, it's just us kind of trying to, me in a short time, trying to touch on some of the big themes that really Brian emphasizes in his work and his writing and speaking. Um, Brian loves to diagnose, well, to, to really put his finger on some of the ways in which Christians have sided too often with a kind of a religious nationalism instead of the way of the kingdom, which kind of refuses to be drawn into one country's patriotic fervor. Um, Brian's latest book, which will be coming out soon, is Postcards from Babylon, which really looks particularly at the American context um, of religious nationalism and how um, how to be a voice for the kingdom in a place of empire. So I hope you enjoy this podcast with um, these two great individuals, and I hope it's something that kind of spurs you to come back to this podcast and listen to it a bit more. Thanks. Bye. Okay, so we're here in uh, our prayer room in Onkuen in Ross Trevor, right on the Irish border, overlooking beautiful Carlingford Loch. And it's a real privilege to have Pastor Brian Zond and Perry Zond, who have been visiting with us for the last week uh, from Missouri. This is the second year in a row we've had Brian and Perry, so you're, you're very welcome. Good to be there here. Is. Yeah. Hi, Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> so I haven't done this kind of podcast stuff before, so let's hope that this is going to be a fun uh, 25 minutes yes, or something. Yes, I haven't done it either. <laughs> I've done a million of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Brian's the expert, so why don't you lead the way? No, I'm just kidding. So, um, okay, let's 
go into a little bit of theology um, while we're here, because I think that's your day job, you know? Um, mm, yeah. And uh, um, so we're here in uh, in Ross Trevor, and C.S. Lewis wrote a, a letter, it's published actually, to, a, to his brother, where he said, where the Mourn Mountains come down to the village of Ross Trevor, uh, for me, that is Narnia. So we are literally in Narnia, right? Yeah, now. I've been looking out the window. I think I just saw a fawn dart by, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's a, we've got an ancient oak forest behind us, uh, the beautiful Mourn Mountains, Sleeve Martin overlooking us, and Carlingford Loch in front of us. Um, the, um, if you walk up the hill behind us, you come to a big stone, uh, which literally means big stone. Clockmore is the Irish word for big stone. So people call it Clockmore Stone, which doesn't really make sense because that <laughs> means big stone stone. Um, but it's a big stone. And when you read the, obviously, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, as I did to my kids recently, there's the stone table, Aslan getting uh, killed on it. And some would, I think people like Greg Boyd would say, it's a, it is the quintessential kind of Christus Victor um, narrative in fiction. Um, and you've written a lot and talked a lot about the atonement, and it's probably got you into a lot of trouble. Uh, and I think a lot of what you've said I found very, very helpful. And um, do you want to just unpack some of your thoughts about, uh, obviously we could talk for hours about it, but, you know, given the kind of that Christus Victor kind of model, and what do you think about that? And, and what do you, yeah, think about Penal substitution, obviously, Most has been your atonement big theories operate from the assumption that God needs or requires some form of sacrifice in the form of ritual. Yes, we're all called to sacrifice our lives in the sense of we take up the cross, we follow Jesus, we, we say no to, you know, self-driven desires. But beyond that, most so-called atonement theories operate from the assumption that God actually needs and requires some form of ritual blood sacrifice. Now, that's strange that Christians would continue to claim that, or perhaps not, but perhaps it's inevitable. But even in the Old Testament, this assumption began to be challenged. Early in the text of the Hebrew Scriptures, with the law, the Torah, you have all kinds of prescriptions about the need for blood sacrifice. Very early on in Genesis, you have the story of Abraham moving from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice, and then animal sacrifice becomes encoded in the Torah. But by the time you reach the prophets, they're questioning this. And some psalmists are daring enough to say, blood sacrifice and sin offering you have not required. Hosea will speak in the name of the Lord and say, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So if we are going to think that somehow justice is satisfied by a sacrifice of blood, then we have to ask yourself, well, who exactly is in charge here? Do you have God the Father saying, look, world. I do love you, and I would love to forgive you, but I've got to satisfy justice. As if justice is some goddess that looms over the God whom Jesus called Abba. I don't know how that works. Uh, I know that you can read some of Paul's writings in such a way that you think that's what he's saying, but I think that's a conditioned misreading over a long period of time. If, you, if we want to think of the death of Jesus 
upon the cross as a sacrifice. So be it. I'm fine with that. But let's say it this way. It's a sacrifice to end sacrificing. Hmm. It is the place where we finally realize that God does not require ritual killing of any kind. The cross is not where God gains the capital to forgive. The cross is where we discover who God really is. Mm. Mm. Um, The cross is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. For example, the Apostle Paul says that um, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, speaking of the cross. Uh, Don't misread that. Don't invert that. We've read that as God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world. Okay, now that Jesus has been severely whipped, lashed, pierced, punished, okay, now I can forgive. That's not what Paul says. Paul says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Mm -hmm. In other words, Jesus doesn't come to change God's mind about us. He comes to change our mind about God. In fact, the moment you start talking about somehow the cross changing God, you're in pretty sketchy territory anyway, because now you are challenging the immutability of God. You're saying God himself is subject to change, and I think that's a dangerous move. So that's real quick, you know, you can go on and on, but those are some of my thoughts. Which, by the way, I want to say, because somebody, well, that's just, you know, some Johnny-come-lately thing he's dreamed up. Uh, It's very consistent with what the Orthodox Church has taught for, oh, let's say roughly 2,000 years. So the problems I have with atonement theology are found within the Western Church, that is, the Catholic Protestant Church. Uh, The Orthodox just never went down that road. Uh, And part of it is the Orthodox view sin primarily as a therapeutic problem, a disease, and that what we really need is a doctor. In the West, um, beginning with Augustine and then much more with Luther and Calvin, Luther who studied to be a lawyer, Calvin who was a lawyer, approach sin as a legal problem. What we need is a lawyer to get us off the hook. Uh, I think that's an inferior way of viewing salvation. We don't need so much a lawyer to get us off the hook as we need a doctor to heal our soul. Yeah. And I think uh, we're, you know, whether we like it or not, where we live shapes our theology in some form, you know, um, and or shapes the way we read the Bible. And I think for me, I grew up in Northern Ireland. I'm a, well, from the age of nine after I left New Zealand. And, and when I moved here in 84, we were in the middle of 30 odd years of troubles, you know, of, of just daily, weekly bombings, shootings, riots, uh, checkpoints, wherever you go. It's just a daily reality. And so in a very real sense, the, the sense that the cross is something that brings peace. He preached peace to those who are near, peace to those who are far. By the cross, he's breaking down dividing walls. I mean, in Belfast, we have dozens and dozens of physical dividing barriers yes. between communities. So it it resonates hugely in our society. So in that sense, I think a lot of what you've been talking about, I think it's been very helpful. That Because when the trouble started in Northern Ireland, we had the largest percentage of evangelicals per capita in, in Europe, in Western Europe. And yet we started a civil conflict. Where were the churches? We were busy getting people into heaven. <laughs> yeah. So how we understand the cross, how we view the cross, informs how we relate to violence. If in some way we see the cross as that which God inflicts upon Jesus, 
then we buy into the myth of redemptive violence, mm. that somehow violence can lead us toward a good end. But it, and I think that's terribly mistaken and opens the door for the possibility of all kinds of atrocities committed in the name of God. We are much better served to understand the cross as that which God endures as God forgives. And that the relationship of the cross to violence, it's not where God utilizes violence toward a redemptive purpose. It's where God brings an end to violence. The cross is where we recognize that we cannot kill in the name of God. Yeah. And so when we were at church the other day, it was interesting because, you know, you've only been to Northern Ireland a couple of times and probably didn't know a lot of our, uh, we know the basics of our context, but... Um, you mentioned uh, everywhere you go, I think you talk about it in one of your books of blanking on it. Everywhere you go in cities and around the world, you see there's a dude on a white horse. There's always some said. dude on a horse. Yeah. And when you said that, um, everyone laughed in the church because in Northern Ireland, we have this guy called King William of Orange or King Billy, as we affectionately <laughs> refer to him as. And, um, and, uh, and, and then you went on to then talk about violence and the four horses. And, and do you want to just unpack a little bit of that and kind of... Yeah, real quick. The book of Revelation, uh, not a forecasting of 21st century events, but a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire and thus all empires. And in chapter six, you have this cycle that is presented in the series of horses, horsemen, and uh, we, it's come to be known in, in um, popular culture as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Apocalypse not meaning catastrophe, but of revelation, of the unveiling, the apocalypses. And so you have this sequence of horses, white horse identified with conquest, red horse of war, the black horse of famine, poverty, privation, and then finally it all is added up in death, uh, summed up with the pale horse. So you you have white horse, red horse, black horse, pale horse. You have conquest. People go forth to conquer, you know. Hello, your land is now my land. The King Billy figure. Right. right. And uh, the funny thing is, many people don't like being conquered. And so this leads to strife and war, red horse. And war is the very antithesis of that which tends towards human flourishing, and so we're cast down into privation and poverty. Most war operates from the assumption that we live within a closed system, and it's a, gear, a zero-sum game, and there's not enough, and we'll have to fight for it. And then on the heels of that comes death. And so right at this moment, I'm thinking of a Coldplay lyric. Uh, no, I don't want a battle from beginning to end. I don't want a cycle of recycled revenge. I don't want to follow death and all of his friends. Right. So you have these, this series of horsemen that repeats over and over and over, white, red, black, pale. Conquest, war, poverty, death. And it repeats again and again. We call it world history. So that when Jesus arrives in the holy city of Jerusalem to be crowned king, he rides anything but a horse. He rides a donkey and not even a full-grown donkey, a little colt, the foal of a donkey, as a very prophetic statement that Jesus is rejecting the way that the world crowns its kings. Mm. And his crown is made of thorns. His acclaim is by insult. His procession is to carry his cross, and his throne is that cross. But all of this is vindicated by the Father on 
Easter, and he's raised from the dead, and now Jesus is pictured as riding the white horse in the heavens, but how does he conquer? With a sword from his mouth. Not a sword in his hand. All those dudes on the horse always got a sword in their hand. No, it's the... And look, I am one of those who have already been slain by the word that comes from the mouth of the white horse rider who is Christ and been raised to newness of life. And, he, and he's got blood-soaked clothes, doesn't yes, he? Yes, because he has already laid he's, down his life. He goes life. into battle having shed his own blood, not Amen. shedding anyone else's blood. Yeah, I mean, that's so important for this country. Just, we'll just do one more thing on that, and then we'll maybe talk a bit about the Camino. Um, but uh, So I was in South Africa last month, and the question uh, that has been asked by many people in South Africa is, when is enough enough, you know? Um, uh, you've got black and white people on both sides, uh, Christians and not Christians, who are angry, who are frustrated. Um, they want, they're, they're impatient for, for change to happen. Um, and uh, in Northern Ireland, we've, we've got our own, we've had our own cycle of violence, ex- exactly those four horses. And I love the image of, of Jesus kind of bringing it to an end. And then two months ago, I was in Baltimore. And before I went to Baltimore, my wife's in Baltimore. And I read a book, Between the World and Me, by ta Coates. And, um, and he talked about slavery. And I, I didn't really, you know, I'm not from America, so I didn't know, like, some of the history. But he said this thing. He said, we were enslaved in this country longer than we have been free. Never forget that for 250 years, black people were born into chains whole generations followed by more generations who knew nothing but chains. You cannot forget how much they took from us and how they transfigured our very bodies into sugar, tobacco, cotton, and mm. gold. Um, and, and so when I was in Baltimore and we were doing a kind of a reconciliation conference and in South Africa we did the same thing, we'll do it in Lebanon in September, um, it, I totally see the relevance of what you're talking about, of the, the cycle of revenge and violence and the need to end it. Um, and how, I guess the, it's more of a comment or what's, yeah, what, what are some of your thoughts for America? You know, how do we bring this cycle to an end? How do we be agents of the lamb? How do we somehow allow the cross to be this 21st century presence that brings an end to violence? So. Well, speaking as a white male, I have to be very careful that my language of bringing it to an end doesn't come across as, uh, okay, you all over that now? Can we move on? Everything okay? (laughs) It's not quite that simple. Um, I need to at least representatively Repent, which means repanse, rethink everything, and uh, approach the tragedy of the American experience with slavery, with sorrow, with lament, with mercy, with what can we do to help bring about healing. So when is it over? I don't know. When is enough enough? I don't know. I just know it's not my place to say. Uh, I need to listen to my African-American sisters and brothers. And we're not even mentioning the other great, the twin um, original sins of America are, yes, slavery, but we often forget the ethnic cleansing and genocide of the native inhabitants. That sin was so egregious that we've forgotten it because it was so successful in removing the people. And what genuine repentance looks like... um, 
I'm not entirely sure, but I know it's not just having a little meeting <laughs> and, you know, having some white folks ask an Indian and a black guy to forgive them. And, okay, there, we got that done now. We're Let's done, move yeah, on. Yeah. Uh, you know, some of these things are deeply embedded. And, and uh, I, just, I just think people of power and privilege need to walk more softly, more quietly, listen more. Um, and I, even, even as I make these comments, I feel the weakness of what I'm saying. You know, I think I, I can speak pretty confidently about aspects of atonement theology and interpretation of the book of Revelation and rock and roll. But on this subject, I just feel like when I hear myself talk, I hear myself wanting to say, shut up, Ryan. Yeah. Just be quiet and listen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think it's a real good thing. The victims have to... We don't want to celebrate victimhood, but we have to acknowledge there are victims and that people are still living in the consequences of 250 yeah. years of, or in South Africa's context, hundreds of years of oppression. Um, and I think there are no easy answers. And I think the problem is often the powerful, we look for the easy answer. What's the magic pill that we can take, the silver bullet that will deal with the, the past so we can just move on and live our individualistic selfish Certainly lives. the church should be the laboratory for this. The church should be an anticipation of the age to come. Uh, what reconciliation looks like in the wider society should be first identified within the church. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking... Of that which should be the case, and sometimes is, but um, yeah, I, I think the church should mark the way forward. Uh, the the church should be where we see reconciliation being lived out in a very tangible, real way, and then we then we begin to explore. Well, how does what we see within the church uh, flow into the larger community? How does this yeast of the gospel in the church? Uh, work in the, the, the yeah, wider lump yeah, of the yeah. dough of society. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Um, okay, so I was really excited to hear that, Perry, you've written a book about the Camino, which is going to come out in a little I while. Have. And you didn't ask me to say that, but uh, I, I think there's many people going to be uh, rewarded by reading it. So what, what's it called, and what's the, tell, tell us a bit about that. Um, the book is called Every Scene by Heart. And it's just uh, my personal reflections on the Camino de Santiago, which Brian and I um, did 500 miles, walked 500 miles on an ancient pilgrim path across northern Spain. We did this last September and October, and it was probably the greatest thing that we ever did together. It was just a, a beautiful, beautiful experience. And for me, it was a, a further unfolding revelation of God's goodness and love and just so many, just the opportunity to do nothing for an extended period of time except to get up every morning and walk. We had loads of silence, loads of great conversation. We just, we had lots of time and it was a gift of time. Um, walking, pondering, experiencing God's goodness. And so I, I wrote this, um, I, I just did some personal journaling. I knew that I very much needed to do that when I got home to continue to process all that God had done in my life on the Camino. I just took a few notes every day about what we were doing and also what I was thinking, what was going on, my interior movements of heart. And so when I got home, I just very purposely sat down and began to write. And it was very personal. 
And it took probably probably four months of concentrating writing, but it was a, a very delightful experience. I I further processed what had happened there and remembered things that I'd almost forgotten. And uh, when I was finished, I just had a sense that I wanted to share it. And I shared it with a few friends who really encouraged me to go ahead and make it available to, to those who who may long to do something like this, but think that they can't. Um, for those who maybe are interested, and, and there's all kinds of you know, very specific things, pointers, things I learned, um, things that uh, I wish I maybe had known before. But uh, I just, and, and just also I wrote it for people who just need to know to be reassured of God's provision and God's presence all mm. the time. So I am excited about it. It should be available mm. on Amazon mm. in about a month or so. Okay. Mid-July, every, maybe. Every scene by heart. Every scene by heart. That's great. It, yeah. comes, from, it comes from a Dylan line. Of course, uh, yeah. yes, yes. Which Dylan line is that? Sundown, yellow moon, I replay the past. I know every scene by heart. It all went by so fast. At the very end of the Camino... It's from um, uh, If You See Her Say Hello. Yes. <laughs> At the very end of the Camino, we um, arrived in Santiago, spent three days there, and then we rented a car and drove on to Finisterre, the end of the world. It was another 50 miles or so, and we had no desire to walk it because we were done in <laughs> Santiago. But uh, we rented the car, and driving... The car, we went down some of the, the very end of the Camino, the very same place where we had walked a few days earlier. And it was just so exciting to see those places and kind of relive it. And those words just came out of my mouth. I know every scene by heart. They all went by so fast. And so it just seemed very natural that that would be the name of the book. Wow. And uh, we, we do a, a border walk here every year, a 200-mile walk of reconciliation. Yes, I wish I could go yeah, with you. Yeah, it would have been great for you guys to have joined us. It hasn't quite worked this year. But I suppose when we started doing that five years ago, I was a bit nervous about it. I thought, I thought we'd finished Christians doing walks and carrying crosses in the 80s, you know. And <laughs> with, uh, but as I did it, I realized there was a whole element to it that I hadn't hadn't picked up on it wasn't just a prophetic act it wasn't an act of reconciliation it was also a bit of a pilgrimage which as a protestant as a kind of an evangelical charismatic whatever i am progressive whatever pilgrimage wasn't a word i had ever really used you know Um, but it's a very christian word yeah and so what is uh, kind of is that kind of obviously you experience that on the camino like pilgrimage what does that mean to you yes well psalm 84 blessed is the one whose heart is set on pilgrimage Blessed is the one who has the idea that um, life is about going somewhere. Life is about making progress, making progress on our journey with God. And Christianity is not a, a status. It's not a stagnant thing, but it's always, always moving, journeying, going somewhere. Right, yeah. I, one of my favorite quotes uh, is Abraham Heschel said, uh, Faith is not the clinging to a shrine, but an endless pilgrimage of the heart. Oh, that's beautiful. I've never um, heard that. That's great. Oh, maybe yeah, I yeah. should have added it to my book. <laughs> Too bad. Yeah. Well, it was Abraham Heschel. It's not me. But, um, 
But yeah, I mean, I suppose, so somehow when you're walking physically, there's something internally going on too. Yes, yes. And I think particularly for us moderns, we never slow down. We're always moving so fast in our cars, in our airplanes, going, going, going. We have a busy schedule. But if you're on a pilgrimage, a real pilgrimage, a walking pilgrimage, you are forced to slow down. So we give God time to accomplish what God needs to accomplish. We open ourselves up to hear from God on a pilgrimage. So it becomes kind of like a spiritual discipline, like a fast. Like, oh, yes. Mm-hmm. You should yes. fast from time to time. And maybe we should take long walks. Take, I think we should all take more long year, walks. You know? Yes, I yeah. love to walk. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, really good. So one last thing, Perry. So Perry, you did an evening the other night on the Enneagram, which was really good in this village. We had a, a room full of people eagerly anticipating you telling them all what they needed to know about their personalities. Well, and, I don't know about that. <laughs> of course, we realized it was a lot more complicated than that. But, um, but then when I was talking to you in the car the other day about the Enneagram, you just brought out this line about... Uh, about understanding how much you're loved. And um, what, can you repeat that? Something about what you said Oh, I there. probably can't repeat it. <laughs> but the Enneagram is a tool for looking deeply into yourself. And it is the best tool that I have found for helping people to very quickly look within and see things that have always been there Maybe because they've always been there, they've never been noticed. Just the way that we look at the world. And I don't have time to to delve deeply into the Enneagram. But one of the things that it has most done for me is um, given me the ability to really accept the person that God made me to be. And not fighting to be somebody else, but accepting myself, seeing myself first as a gift I remember um, for years I would, um, in, in prayer, lamenting the deplorable person I was. I finally came to a place where I would say, but God, come on. You're the one that made me like this. You bear some of the blame. <laughs> you made me like this. And understanding that, yes, he did make me like this. And I'm not someone to be despised, you know, self self-deprecating all the time, but um, just coming to understand and accept the person God made me to be, loving the gift, but also just accepting my weaknesses, understanding that I don't have, I don't bear all the divine attributes, but that's part of being in community with others and understanding um, God created us in his image and he gave each one of us good gifts that reflect who he is. But um, we need one another. And forgiveness is such an important part. I mean, forgiveness is the essence of God's love. But sometimes we need to just, not even forgive, but to accept others for who they are. Just to accept them. Not to expect them to change, but to to accept them. Mm-hmm. And there's something about when we begin to accept others, it also helps us to accept ourselves mm-hmm. and even to love ourselves. Mm-hmm. And receiving the love of God and loving ourselves are very closely linked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
that's uh, really good stuff. Um, so uh, I, I won't go into more. There's so much more. I'd love to ask about this, the prayer school yes. that you do, Brian, and um, uh, more about the Enneagram. But uh, maybe um, we will end by doing, because uh, I'm sitting next to a pastor that likes rock music, and uh, so it would be a shame not to do a top 10, top 10 best songs of all time let's do that i can't do oh, top no, no, 10 best, best, top songs 10 best, best uh, sorry not songs best albums, best albums. Mm, you know th- this is not an order and i'm going to i'm going to I'm, everybody knows i'm a big dylan fan so dylan's best is blood on the tracks and then the next would be blonde on blonde highway 61 revisited bringing it all back home time out of mind uh oh mercy those are dylan's best non-dylan albums zeppelin four I already mentioned George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. I mentioned uh, Wilco's Yankee, Hotel Foxtrot. I think Queens of the Stone Age, like Clockwork, is a brilliant album. I got my Queens of the Stone Age t-shirt on today, which you know a lot of people think is a sin, but I don't think so. Um, the Suburbs, yes, by uh, Archive. You know, we, and we've already mentioned Joshua Tree, you two. Let's see what... And what about Bruce Coburn? I'm a big oh, Bruce Coburn. Charity fan. of the Night is my favorite Bruce Coburn album. That's a near perfect album yeah, too. Yeah. Oh, what a great album! Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that yeah. Is. And um, and I haven't Van mentioned Morrison? Neil Young. I get to get a shout Neil out to Young. Neil Young. I don't know if I have. I mean, Harvest might be the favorite yeah, album. Yeah. Um, or after the Gold Rush. Or, uh, yeah, after the Gold. There's a lot of good Neil yeah, Young. Yeah, and um, and is Van Morrison up there in your kind of? I have deep respect for Van Morrison. I never hear Van Morrison that I don't like him, but I yeah, don't. Yeah. I'm not that attuned. I know yeah, his yeah. big hits, you yeah, know, yeah. but I don't know the deep tracks. Yeah, he's Van a good. Morrison. He's a good East Belfast lad. You were speaking the other day in East Belfast. He would Van Morrison grew up about a stone's throw from that. From that. Uh, I have church. nothing but the highest respect for both Van Morrison and Van Morrison fans because I know he's legit. Well, listen, it's, um, we could talk a long time, uh, but we, I think we'll bring it to an end. We're very grateful for Frasans. He's from the band Nalani. He's got a new album themselves coming out soon. They, they played before Brian spoke the other night at St. Was Patrick's awesome. Cathedral. It was really good. I mean, I'm not just saying that because he's sitting in the room. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've said that when he wasn't sitting in the room. It was yes. really good. Yeah, so we'll all look out for Nalani's new album. Um, that's uh, and uh, so thanks Fra for for recording this and thanks Brian and Perry for being here and I would love and I think many people in Northern Ireland and the whole island of Ireland the Republic from north to south would would love to see you guys here whenever you decide to come and uh, maybe we can do a prayer school in Narnia yeah let's do <laughs> that, that would be let's, wonderful so we'll we'll start working on a prayer school in in Narnia next year AKA Ross Trevor. Um, but thanks for being with us, uh, for your time, your graciousness. And, and I think also thanks for your that prophetic voice, Brian, that you're bringing to the church at this time. Uh, we really need it. And, um, and Perry, I'm really looking forward to reading your Camino book. And I know in James great, as well. Yeah, great. So we'll do that. And Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. We didn't even talk about that. Yeah, those yeah. songs just have all kinds of books coming yeah, out, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but people know all about that. So thanks, guys, for uh, being with us.